Hello and welcome to Adrift in Melbourne, a three-part podcast series of City Walks recorded and produced by City of Melbourne Libraries. I'm Robin Anea and I'll be your host and guide. You may know me through my books of Melbourne history, like Bear Brass and A City Lost and Found, that's the one about Will and the Wrecker, or my latest book, Adrift in Melbourne, which takes the reader on seven walks through the city. Or maybe you've heard my podcast, Nothing on TV, where I weave stories out of old newspapers. My take on Melbourne history often draws more on the things that have gone than the things you can still see. So, tune in your mind's eye and let's go. First though, let me acknowledge with respect that this walking tour takes place on the traditional land of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the East Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. On this walk, I call it complete with Aspidistra, we'll be discovering the Lounges Club as well as Melbourne's first skyscraper and the surprising perils of Flinders Lane. Our starting point for the walk is the City Library at 253 Flinders Lane. That's between Swanston and Elizabeth Streets, just round the corner from DeGrave Street. Okay, let's go. Head down Flinders Lane from the City Library towards Elizabeth Street. At the corner, I want you to look across Elizabeth Street to the corner diagonally opposite. It's a squat, five-storey black-clad building. Now hit pause now while you walk down Flinders Lane and then play again once you get to the Elizabeth Street corner. Stop one. On this inauspicious corner, for 60 years, stood Melbourne's tallest building. Built in 1890, it was given a monumental name, the Australian Building. A visitor to Melbourne in 1883 had noted, the climate and the comparative cheapness of land give the colonists an aversion to height in their buildings. That may have been so, mainly though tall buildings were unpopular because you had to rely on the stairs to reach the upper floors. It was the advent of elevators that enabled the Australian building and its tenants to reach 12 storeys high. Those early lifts were run by hydraulic power. High-pressure water was pumped underground throughout the city from a plant in present-day docklands. In some laneways, you can still see the metal cover plates stamped with Hydraulic Power Department, marking the old service ports. Rather than being raised by cables, the lifts in the Australian building were pushed upwards by an iron plunger which, as the force of water from below was reduced, would gradually descend. Touted as the safest of elevator technologies of its time, it meant that a shaft for this plunger had to be sunk as deep below the building as the lifts went high. And that was a real challenge in this, the lowest-lying and wettest part of the city. Gold miners were brought in to dig the lift shaft through the wet, unstable ground. 
In its day, the Australian building rivaled contemporary skyscrapers that were popping up in New York and Chicago at the time, and for more than 20 years, it would be taller than anything in Sydney. But how typically Melbourne to choose the city's lowliest elevation for the site of its tallest building. The depression of the 1890s ended marvellous Melbourne's boom years, and soon after, a height limit of 40 metres would be imposed on new city builds. That was because of the Australian building. At 45 metres, it was too tall. No fire hose could reach its upper storeys, and for a building with timber floors, that posed a real danger. Besides, the thinking went, if skyscrapers were allowed to proliferate, even Melbourne's broad streets might become gloomy canyons. The city kept its 40-metre height limit until 1958, when the ICI building went up. By the time the Australian building was demolished in 1980, it was a fairly undistinguished structure, sooty with age and overshadowed by the city's upward progress. In its dying days, even heritage advocates couldn't find much to say in its favour, beyond that it demonstrated a strong texture, mainly through the multitude of windows and a relationship of solids to voids, whatever that meant. But it's rather remarkable to think of a 12-storey skyscraper built entirely of brick, with dormer windows and a slate-roofed turret. In old photographs, what most stands out is the soaring slab of the unwindowed north wall of the Australian building, which for decades was painted with a gigantic endorsement for sunlight soap. It said, good for the clothes, good for the hands that wash the clothes. And it was legible the full length of Elizabeth Street. From the top of the Australian building, you'd have had a view of the river from all but the lowest stories and skylights in the roof made the top floor prized as a photographic studio. And like all city buildings of that period, the Australian building operated on the unintentionally socialistic principle that the best view was reserved for its living caretaker, whose lodgings were on the roof. On the afternoon of its official opening, the entire board of the company that owned the Australian building crowded into one of the lifts, bound for the top floor. The dozen men included Alfred Deacon and other notables who, had they but known it, would lose everything in the coming financial crash of 1891. The lift driver tugged a rope, too vigorously perhaps, because the lift shot up like a rocket. Luckily, safety springs at the top of the shaft cushioned the lift's impact it recalled a mere three metres, so that in this crash at least, hats were the only casualties. Waiting to greet the shaken dignitaries was the building's architect, Henry Kemp, who would later write, What a sensation in the city of that day if suddenly had emerged from its highest building a rocket with a dripping tail 100 feet long topped by a crushed lift cage from which dropped at intervals, into the Yarra or on the railway buildings, some of the best-known citizens. Kemp also noted that, to a man, the dignitaries all chose the stairs for their descent. 
something along the lines of Henry Kemp's gleeful fantasy actually came to pass in 1893, only the results were far from comic. William Ellis, a house painter, had collected his week's wages in Flinders Lane, not far from City Library, and holding his little daughter Daisy by the hand, was nearing the spot where you were standing. When from out of the sky came a lump of jagged iron, maybe three kilograms in weight, it missed Daisy but killed her father. A winding engine had exploded on the roof of a building site 200 metres from here, showering the whole city centre with metal fragments and bits of the poor engine driver. Flinders Lane could be treacherous. Now from here we're going to walk along Elizabeth Street to Flinders Street, cross Flinders Street at the lights and then just walk a short distance to the left of the busy railway station entrance, not too far. You want to be facing the intersection of Flinders and Elizabeth Streets. Hit pause now and rejoin me once you get there. Stop two. This Elizabeth Street end of the Flinders Street station site was where the original railway station stood from 1854 as the city terminus of Victoria's first train line that went to Port Melbourne. The current Flinders Street station building with its main entrance at Swanson Street opened in 1909. Not much more than a year later, the Elizabeth Street subway and station basement were knee-deep in water after a sudden summer downpour. But the railway commissioners assured Melburnians they said there is no likelihood of the subways being flooded in the future. Bold words. In fact, Elizabeth Street would and will always flood because it marks the crease between Melbourne's hills. It's a gully, a creek in waiting, an offshoot of the Yarra, the natural course of the city's stormwater. As the writer Tony Morrison once wrote, all water has a perfect memory. In Melbourne's early decades, the Elizabeth Street Gully was in its near natural state with no underground drainage, no gutters, no footpaths to speak of. But it was also a busy thoroughfare lined with shops. And it was the street that divided the two ends of town. To cross it in wet weather called for sturdy boots and temerity. Semi-permanent water features on Elizabeth Street included Lake Cashmore and the River Ensco. These were treacherous spots near the Collins Street corner and both were named for long-suffering storekeepers in the vicinity. People even joked of running a ferry across the post office coast up near Burke Street where legend tells of an entire bullock team swallowed up in a mud hole. At least once a decade, the old waterway reasserts itself and when it does, no amount of plumbing can contain it. Because it swarts the floodwaters route to the river, this end of Flinders Street Station invariably gets the knee-deep treatment. Surely the station's Elizabeth Street subway was meant to double as a drain, no matter what the railway commissioners may have said. It makes sense that before there was a station... Before there were railways, there should have been a waterworks at this corner. For a few years from 1849, water was pumped from the dirty Yarra to a filtration tank here at this intersection and sold for household use at the rate of a penny a barrel. 
With the advent of the railways, a tank was raised on top of a timber tower, perhaps it was the same tank, at the original Elizabeth Street station entrance to supply water for the locomotive steam engines. When the station took on a more substantial shape in 1883, a new tower replaced the old one on this spot. This was still the main station entrance. But instead of a water tank, the tower supported Melbourne's first landmark clock, known ever after as the water tower clock. Its watery connection was finally broken when, as work began on the new station in 1905, the clock tower relocated to Spencer Street Station, where it would be a fixture for another 60 years, still called the water tower clock. The four-faced clock that now stands high above the Elizabeth Street Station entrance became the keeper of railway time in Melbourne, visible to commuters from all points of the compass. Now we're going to keep walking along Flinders Street until about halfway to Swanson Street we'll come to the pedestrian lights. At the side of the station right there, you'll see an ornamental metal fence with a grill behind it covering basement windows. That's where we're headed next. So stop when you get to the pedestrian lights. Hit pause now and rejoin me when you get there. Stop three. After the crash and slump of the 1890s depression, Flinders Street Station was the city's big gesture of renewal. The huge pile took four years to build, opening in 1909. And right from the start, critics dismissed the station's architecture as florid and vulgar. But they kind of missed the point. Flinders Street Station was a palace for the people. It was designed to be not just a place to catch a train, but the civic and social heart of the working city. Upstairs, above the station concourse, were a massive ballroom, a creche, a maze of rooms where the Victorian Railway Institute held clubs and classes, including things like fencing, table tennis, wrestling, photography, calisthenics and ham radio. And of course, under the clocks became the great Melbourne rendezvous. But there was nowhere under the clocks of the new station to sit or shelter from the weather. Thank goodness then for the Lounges Club. Managed by one Ada Gunn, the Lounges Club was in the basement of the new station, behind this grilled window right here. Melbourne had numerous clubs for men, of course, the Yorick, Athenaeum, of course, the Melbourne Club, just to name a few, but none for women before the Lounges Club. For a penny, or an annual fee of one guinea, a woman could freshen up, write and post a letter, make a phone call or just lounge on a sofa while waiting for unpunctual friends. Tea and scones cost threepence and the latest newspapers could be read for free. The club was fitted up like a middle-class parlour, complete with aspidistra. There were tasteful pictures on the walls, bookshelves and a wickerwork whatnot, all keyed in the colour scheme of bronze, green and pale mauve. The civic-minded spirit of the Lounges Club was in keeping with the new station. Evidently, it was seen not just as an amenity, but as a proud innovation. Melbourne people are very much inclined, said one of the papers, to think that America, or even Sydney, must always have superior comforts, facilities and conveniences in every way. I like that, or even Sydney. But did Toledo or Sydney have a Lounges Club? where an office girl could sit and eat her sandwiches out of the weather or change her blouse 
or do her hair before a night out in town. Open till 11.30 at night, the Lounges Club hosted regular meetings of, for instance, the Terrier Fanciers and the Unlicensed Chemist Assistance Association. Ahead of the 1910 federal election, one of the first at which women could vote, candidates canvassed women voters there, prompting this broadside in the press. Women again! What is not politics doing for the women? God help Australia when women begin to take the place of men in clubs hitherto sacred to male lounging. Instead, the lounges club was soon itself infiltrated, opening a smoke lounge for men and selling cigars at the refreshment window. A Mrs Walker, well known in ice skating and croquet circles, took over from Ada Gunn in 1915 and would eventually move the lounges club to the other side of Flinders Street, after which this basement area would become the station cafeteria. Now let's cross Flinders Street with the pedestrian lights and walk along Flinders Street to Swanston. Cross at the lights there and find a spot from which to contemplate Federation Square opposite. Hit pause now and then play again once you get there. Stop four. At the Fed Square corner once stood, would you believe, Melbourne's morgue. Such a main street location as this would seem to suggest there must have been a literal acceptance in the 19th century of the proposition that in the midst of life we are in death. And indeed, a birth or marriage could be registered at an office right next door. The morgue was on this spot for maybe 25 years. As public utilities went, though, it was a wandering one. But it never wandered far from the river. For convenience, I guess, as hardly a day passed without at least one body being fished out of the Yarra, whether from drunken misadventure, suicide, murder or just plain bad luck, it was no rare thing for a Melbourneian to end up dead in the sluggish Yarra. Women and newborns accounted for many of the river dead because what could you do if you were poor, single and pregnant? According to popular wisdom, your options boil down to these. Marry, stitch, die, or do worse. Yes, that's right. Victorian social values ranked prostitution as worse than death. And so to the river. In the early 1880s, the morgue made way for Princess Bridge Station, the terminus of railways converging on Melbourne from the east. The morgue relocated across the rail yards, closer to the river's edge. Now we're going to walk along Swanson Street just a short way to the seating alcove beside St Paul's Cathedral with the words ladies only marked on the ground in front. Hit pause now and hit play again once you're there. Stop five. The Melbourne City Council in 1934 ruled that some of the seats beside St Paul's Cathedral would be set apart for women folk. They called it combining chivalry with utilitarianism. These seating alcoves opposite the entrance to the busy Flinders Street station were a popular spot for waiting and also for people watching. They were even said to be a substitute for the non-existent city square, 
The problem was that men usurped more than a fair share of the accommodation. And so, the words ladies only were marked out in discreet white tiles at the entrance to one of the seating alcoves. But one of the newspapers would soon remark, the tilers might have saved themselves the trouble. The summer brought the familiar sight of elderly women laden with parcels, gazing wistfully at the seats occupied by men. Perhaps the sign was too discreet. The edict was amplified in painted letters 60 centimetres tall, which seemed to have some effect, only it wore off with the paint. From time to time, council workers would touch up the lettering, and it was always under the watchful eye of men seated there. We're going to continue along Swanson Street, then turn right into Flinders Lane. Walk uphill just a short way until you're opposite the entrance to the Western Hotel car park behind St Paul's Cathedral. Hit pause now. Rejoin me once you're there. Stop six. Near this very spot, one afternoon in October 1880, passers-by encountered a most ghastly spectacle. Lying on the ledge of a shop window opposite was a human hand in an advanced state of decomposition. Some boys had found it in the middle of the street and they kicked it around for a while before losing interest. Whatever tale of foul murder it may have to tell, said the Herald, cannot yet be ascertained. Many wondered if the hand might have belonged to the long-missing Mrs Farrell. Who was this Mrs Farrell? Well, two years earlier, 28-year-old Elizabeth Farrell had been reported missing from her Collingwood home. Her relatives cast suspicion on Elizabeth's violent husband and his brother, but police dismissed her disappearance as a domestic matter. Only after the newspapers took an interest in the Farrell mystery, as they called it, was a pair of detectives finally sent in. They pulled up the Farrell's floorboards, dug up the backyard dredged the river and even searched the Collingwood manure depot. Nothing. Four years would pass. Mr Farrell and his brother both died. Elizabeth's children were sent to an orphanage and the tumble-down house in Montague Street was sold for demolition. The wreckers had nearly finished their work when, under the hearthstone, they found a mass of bones. But then they let a rag and bone man take them away before police were notified. Some of the bones would be retrieved, but too few for an inquest. The severed hand found in Flinders Lane was sent to the morgue for investigation. Many had speculated it might have been an amputation thrown into the river and then washed up by recent floods. An amputated arm had been fished out of the Yarra not long before. But no, the hand of a woman or a small man with tapering fingers, was found to have rotted off and had evidently been preserved in spirits for some time as a specimen. How it had ended up in Flinders Lane was anyone's guess, but as I think I've mentioned before, Flinders Lane could be treacherous. Now retrace your steps to the Swanson Street corner. For our final stop on this walk, we're going to be looking at the city square corner of Swanston Street and Flinders Lane. Hit pause now and then start again when you're ready to go on. Stop seven. 
Albert Williams arrived by ship from England on the 15th of December 1891. During his 28 days in Melbourne, he would change his name four times and kill his wife. Like Elizabeth Farrell, Emily Williams was buried under the hearth of a cottage fireplace. That cottage was in Windsor, newly leased to a man who called himself Druin. A week after Emily's death, her husband took a room at the Cathedral Hotel on this spot under the name of Frederick Duncan. While in residence there, but using the name Harry Dawson, he sold his murdered wife's effects and paid for some jewellery with a forged cheque before taking the name Baron Swanston, after Swanston Street, presumably, and boarding a ship for Sydney. On the voyage, he met a young woman named Kate Rounsfall, and within days, they were engaged. It was now January 1892, and his wife Emily had been dead for just three weeks. Her body would be discovered in early March, triggering a manhunt for the Windsor murderer. By then... Baron Swanston was on the West Australian gold fields and his fiancée, Kate, was on her way from Sydney to join him. When her ship put in at Melbourne, she was met by a telegram from her sister, for God's sake, go no further. Albert Williams' real name, it turned out, was Frederick Deeming. Arrested in Western Australia, he was being escorted back to Melbourne when police searching his former home in Lancashire northern England, uncovered the bodies of Deeming's first wife and their four children. There were calls for his extradition to England where he'd have had to answer for five murders instead of just one, but he could only be hanged once, and he was at Melbourne Jail on 23rd of May, 1892. At the time, some in the press speculated that Deeming may have been Jack the Ripper. The dates and his whereabouts roughly lined up and he half-hinted that they were right. He still counts among the suspects today. Back when Melbourne Street Grid was drawn up, ahead of the first land sales in 1837, no space was allocated for a public square. The surveyor, Robert Hoddle, wasn't to blame. His proposal for a very handsome square was overruled. British cities just then were seeing mass demonstrations by chartists calling for political and social reforms. A public square, the thinking went, wouldn't just give the mob a place to gather, but would encourage democracy, not a good thing in a far-flung finger of the empire. Melbourne wouldn't have a designated city square until 1980. To belatedly create this space, all the buildings laneways and arcades between here and Collins Street were demolished over the course of the 70s. Queen's Walk, Regent Place, the Cathedral Hotel where Deeming shed his skin and many more Melbourne landmarks were all laid to waste. And was it worth it? When finally done, the city square felt like the overdetermined afterthought it was. In the decades since, The city square has been repeatedly tinkered with and encroached upon, never given a chance to grow an identity of its own. When it finally emerges as entrance to the new town hall station, it'll be, if not a real city square, at least something other than a work in progress.
You've been drifting with me, Robin Anir. Thanks for joining me on this walk from Adrift in Melbourne, a three-part podcast series adapted from my book of the same name. You can find other podcasts in this series in your favourite podcast app or at SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for City of Melbourne Libraries. This podcast was recorded and produced by City of Melbourne Libraries.